Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, warts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. My name is David Peterson, and I'm a professional language creator and author. Author. And what have you written? Uh, well, uh, initially, Living Language Dothraki, which was a teacher self-guide for the Dothraki language, but most recently, The Art of Language Invention, which is an instructional book about how to create a language. Um, so, well, actually, that's a question I'll get to in a second, because I want to... Sure go through the thought process of creating a language, but um, to go back a little bit, when did you realize that there was this sort of a love of language and creating languages? Uh, My initial interest in language uh, happened rather spontaneously. Uh, I grew up in a a bilingual household, but um, due to an initial, uh, or due to an early divorce, was kind of connected, uh, disconnected from the uh, Spanish-speaking side of my family. And so um, I kind of uh, didn't gain full bilingual fluency, became what's called a heritage speaker. And so for many years, I was kind of annoyed by the fact that my relatives could speak Spanish so well, and I couldn't. Um, so I kind of didn't like the idea of second languages at all. Is that your background? Second. No problem. Sorry. Is that your background, the Spanish heritage? Yeah, uh, yeah, Mexico specifically. Mexico. Okay. Um, and um, so uh, I, I kind of just ignored language and rolled my eyes at trying to learn it. I took Spanish in high school because I thought it would be easy, and it was. Um, but when I was 17, I woke up one morning after, after a dream and was just struck by the fact that millions of people spoke French and that I wasn't one of them. And so it immediately became my goal to learn every language on the planet. It happened literally that quickly, and I started right then. I just grabbed any kind of language book I could and, and tried to start learning them, trying to do the exercise and things like that. Uh, and then the next year, I, I, in addition to AP Spanish, I took German 1. I wanted to take French 2. It was the only one available. The instructor wouldn't let me. I thought that I could catch up, and I'm sure that I absolutely could have caught up, but I wasn't allowed in. Uh, and then when I went to Berkeley, I continued to take languages. I, I took Arabic because I was really interested in it. I took two semesters of Arabic, a semester of Russian, uh, a semester of Esperanto, which was the first created language I'd ever heard of, um, a semester of French, a semester of Middle Egyptian. Uh, and unfortunately, that was it. There were many more offerings. I should have taken many more language classes. Um, so easy when you're in college, not in the real world. Um, but um, it was during my sophomore year that 
I learned about uh, language creation, or I kind of hit upon the idea. So I heard about Esperanto. I took a course in it. And so I knew about languages like Esperanto that have been created for international communication. But while I was taking linguistics, um, I hit upon the idea of creating a language just for my own personal use, just for fun. Uh, and so I started creating it basically as soon as I thought of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been 16 years now and I have yet to lose interest. So let's, let's, let's pause for just one yeah, moment. Sure. Roman, 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 this behavior is not acceptable. Now, Roman, this is your last chance. You understand? I'm going to put you in the bedroom. This is just not going to happen. Come here, my boy. He knows. Come here, my boy. Yes. I see it too. Don't worry about it. All right. He must have smelled the cat on you. He got real friendly real quick. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, my, my cat, she's 11. Um, and she, she's not much of a shedder, but she is very much into, you know, that, that rubbing and the, all that stuff. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. Um, so how many, at this moment, um, how many languages do you speak? I don't know. Depends on how you define speak. I really need to learn what those uh, ratings are for language ability and use those but you know i've studied more than 20 um right now my my project is finished which i hope to learn well enough to be able to do an interview next summer um, so so when you say depends on how you define speak is there a what do you mean by that well for example i think that i know for i know the grammar of hawaiian and the ins and outs of it a lot better than I do German. But if you talk about dropping me in a country uh, and having to get by, I will take German over Hawaiian any day. Because, you know, when you're a linguist, you study a lot of grammars abstractly and you know the ins and outs of them, but that doesn't mean that you're very good at speaking the language mm. um, or that you're going to recall uh, vocabulary. But, you know, with German, I had an entire year of uh, of interaction i i got used to saying phrases and stuff in fact i just went back to my high school and spoke to uh, a couple german classes there because my um, my teacher is still there and you know he addresses the class in german and i discovered that you know 16 years later having not <laughs> done anything with german since then i still understood everything yeah. what do you attribute that to is it is that it just a, a brain function that allows you to do that or or is i know i took i took a year of latin in college um and i remember some of it um mm. you know is it is it attributed to just going back and being in that atmosphere oh it's just memory i i have a really good memory for okay. everything okay you know it's the type of thing where it's like for example when you talk about latin when i think of it i think of the yeah, i'm just like four or five months I spent studying Latin on my own from a book that was published by Barnes & Noble in the 50s. So it wasn't Wheelock's Latin. But it's like, when I think of the declensions, I remember how it looked on the page. 
you know, because I can still see them. You know, like the first one was, you know, Rosa, Rosa, and so on. Yeah, I'm just all there. So it's a, it's a, it's a, just a memory thing. Do you have, do, you, do you have a photographic memory? Then I take it. I don't know. I, I think so. I, or it's just very visual. This, you know, this is how I did it. You know, as an English major, um, I'm a very slow reader, so I couldn't, I could never keep up with the pace that you're supposed to keep up with in English classes. So I just get the reading list ahead of time and 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 be reading, you know, all of them say, over the summer or over the previous semester. Um, and then, you know, during class, I would just remember it. And then the way I would remember quotes, because I didn't like marking up my books or anything, I just remember where it was on the page and what that page looked like. And then that would be enough for me to go and find it, you know, if I needed to get the wording exact. Okay, okay. So um, you were then, in, <coughs> I would assume you're early 20s when you first created your first language or still in teens? Mm, let me think. I guess I would have been 19 still, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because my birthday's in January, yeah. <clears throat> and you said that was just kind of for fun? Was Were your friends involved in any of that? or No, you know, but uh, yeah, but Berkeley, you know, I'm from Orange County, so it's like all my friends were down here. I swear, it was for like four years, we were just totally disconnected. But um, so yeah, I started creating a language then. I, I did it totally on my own. I thought initially that perhaps um, my girlfriend and I would speak it, my girlfriend at the time, um, not understanding that this was, I mean, this, is, this was really, it was really just for me. This is not something that you give as a present that somebody is going to appreciate. Because, you know. <laughs> Learning a language is it's a pain in the butt. Um, so English is hard enough sometimes. Yeah. So uh, and I didn't. I don't think I actually told people about you know just general people about how I created languages until at least a couple of years later. Um, eventually, I did find the community online, the language creation community online. So I had uh, lots of people to talk to there. But yeah, I don't think I actually mentioned it. Um, or told people about it in person until maybe my second to last year of college. So can you go into a little bit of the, not just the thought process, but the process itself of creating a language? Sure. So um, the, uh, the language itself, the, very, the most important thing that you have to do at the beginning is to determine what type of language you're creating, because that's actually going to make a lot of your decisions for you. Um, there are a lot of things that languages have in common, but depending on your project, uh, they could be very, very different enterprises. So for example, if you decide um, that you want to create a language as if, uh, as if Latin had never been expelled from the British Isles, but continued on there into the present, um, then that's going to be a very different enterprise than if you're creating a fantastical language for aliens that have no eyes and ears but 49 tentacles. Um, totally different process, but they're still probably, I mean, both are going to have words and, and such. It's just that with one, you're going to be working with the actual Latin language and evolving it up using sound changes that, uh, that happened in, um, I always get this wrong, I think it's P-Celtic is, is in the West and Q-Celtic was in the East. Um, whereas, you know, for the 49 tentacles, obviously, you're going to be, have to be working, okay, what, if they can't, 
use sounds if they can't use their mouths, how are they going to convey language? It's going to be with their tentacles, all right? Well, how is it going to work? And then you, you go on from there. So it could be that different when it comes to creating a language if you don't uh, specify at the outset exactly why you're doing it. But, you know, let's say that you do the languages that I do most of the time or that I'm called on to do most of the time, which is a more or less realistic language that takes place in some sort of a fictional setting. Um, in that case, uh, you have to figure out as much as you can about who's speaking it, where they're from, and why. Um, you know, for example, creating a, a language in the universe of George R. R. Martin means that you can really start from scratch, uh, whereas if you're creating a language that takes place, let's, let's say it's just a fictional uh, race of people that exist in our world, uh, then, just like our languages, they'll have borrowings from real-world languages. Their word for television is probably going to sound a lot like the English word television and so on and so forth. Um, so that's, a, that's another top-level decision. If you're creating a fantasy language like I do, then what you do is you start from a very early stage. So you create a proto-language. This is uh, something like uh, in English and Russian and German and Greek, those are all descended from one language that we call Proto-Indo-European. So as a language creator, I try to create that earliest stage of the language. At some very, very early date, you have to choose a random cutoff point because we don't know how a language got started. You can only guess. Um, but from that point, you start with uh, a sound system. That is, what sounds are in the language and how they're used, how they're deployed in syllables and words. Uh, and then you have a grammar, both the inflection of nouns, the inflections of verbs, to the extent that the, the language has any. Uh, and also how words are put together into phrases and phrases into sentences. Uh, and then the lexicon, um, which is the entire you know, host of words that the language has, uh, as well as derivational strategies, how you form one word, uh, for, how you form new words from old words. Um, then you evolve it forward. So you start 2,000 years in the past. And then you change the sounds of the language as they would have changed over time. You change the meanings of words as they would have changed over time. And you evolve the grammar incrementally as it would have evolved over time. And the end result is a very believable, very authentic uh, modern language. Is, it, is there some... Is it, I don't want to say is it easier, but is, there a, is it easier, for lack of better words, to mm -hmm. create a fantasy language that you're, where you're even creating the prototype? Or is it, more, is it easier to already have that prototype in place? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that either is easier than the other. Uh, they each present unique challenges, unique and different challenges. So on the one hand... It is easier if you're starting with a complete blank slate because you get to invent everything and you don't have to take anything into account except for what you're doing. Uh, but there's also a lot more work. If you're doing something different like what I described with Latin, then you're starting with a lot of material and that's great. You don't have to create it, but you're also beholden to that material. So you need to make sure everything that you're doing is accurate and makes sense based on the existing material and also the existing, you know, uh, timelines so that you know everything is actually going as it should be. Uh, like, you know, when you're creating your, your own language, you, you have to take into account the history of the people that you have there, but you may get to invent it as you're going along. If you're evolving Latin forward, you really need to be up on the exact timeline of events of what happened over, you know, in the British Isles starting from the, the invasion of the Roman invasion. 
you mentioned the language creation community. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, what is that community like? Are they will they call you out? You know, if you're not um, following the, um, I guess the rules of the prototype language. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the language creation community is is a very it's at this point a loose knit community. It comprises several different listservs, bulletin boards, uh, and then random people on, on Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook. Um, and so uh, the, the, there was only one community at first, and that was the listserv. And then as time wore on, it expanded to many, many other communities. Uh, all of them essentially have the same goal in mind, which is to produce the best languages possible, kind of advance the state of the art. And indeed, in general, the community has got better at it as time has gone on. Uh, so when, you know, popular projects come out, they, I mean, they, of course, look at them and tear them apart. Uh, and usually tearing them apart is in order because, honestly, before Game of Thrones, there wasn't a case where there was an actual language creator working to create a language for any famous project. It was just somebody who never even considered the prospect before. Um, And so, you know, tearing those languages to shreds was really just child's play. Um, At this point, you know, I was already in the community for about 10 years by the time I started working on Game of Thrones uh, and had already established a reputation there. So I think uh, most of the people more or less trusted me to do a good job. Even so, um, I keep that community in mind whenever I'm working on anything now or anything new because I want to be sure myself that I am holding myself up to the standards that the community has set Uh, and I expect that if I ever slip I expect them to call me out on it because if they don't uh, no one will. So you're definitely keeping your audience in mind as far as when you create new languages You're, you're keeping not just the general audience, but the people in your field um, in mind when you're doing that. Yeah, and I think that the best way to describe that is any time that you're producing anything, whether it's a language or a television show or what have you, there's going to be different levels of viewership or different levels of audience. Um, uh, Like concerning just how the languages are used on Game of Thrones, there's a large percentage of the audience that just watches the TV show here's the language, and doesn't give it a second thought. You know, just like, all right, well, whatever. They're they're speaking something, and I don't care about it. Uh, There's going to be that level of audience participation. And there's, you know, a next level where they will pay attention to the fact that, for example, if one person is speaking Valyrian here, and then somebody else is speaking Valyrian here, it should sound about the same. Without knowing any idea what the grammar is or what the words are, paying attention to anything like that, they should you know, develop an ear for it so that they, they can actually, especially after many episodes, pick out that doesn't, that person is, isn't speaking it very well or that doesn't really sound like Valerian so that they would notice if for whatever reason somebody just started writing down gibberish for them to speak. Um, and then, you know, there are further levels beyond that. There are people that will actually write down all of the words. There are people like there's a fan of Valerian in particular he can spot grammatical errors um, on the first airing, where he'll just hear it and say, that doesn't sound right. In fact, 
that sounds like what they said was this. And if that's what they said, that was a grammatical error that I probably made. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I try my best to say that, oh, no, the, the actor just made that error. They just screwed it up. That wasn't me. But sometimes it's me. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think with that in mind, you have to keep all of the audiences in mind. Uh, it's got to be accessible to every single level so that, you know, if somebody wants to dig into it, there's something to dig into, but it's not a, a total barrier to somebody who doesn't want to do that. Like, for example, if subtitles were not included for any of the lines on, on Game of Thrones, I think that would be totally unacceptable. That would just be too high a barrier. Um, and, you, and, and it would be off-putting to a large portion of the audience. And you want everybody to be watching it. And that's the same. Goes as, uh, it goes the same for anything that you produce, I think. As a side note, I, I was listening to an interview with... Um, oh, her name just totally escaped me. The, the actress that plays Daenerys... Oh, Amelia Clark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was listening to an interview with her, and she mentioned that she's gotten to a point now where she can spot her own mistakes when she's, you know, speaking. Um, and it's it's interesting. Do you did you have any involvement in teaching the actors the languages? Yeah, not on Game of Thrones. No, <laughs> it depends. I've been involved with a lot of the actors on the One Hundred, and a lot of the actors on Defiance, um, and then some actors for other productions. It depends. It's an entirely, you know, just, uh, it, it depends on the showrunners or director and what they want and the actors and what they want. Um, in the case of Game of Thrones, though, it's been running for six seasons now, with a seventh season coming up. And certain of the actors have just had so many lines that they're kind of developing their own, I mean, I wouldn't say fluency in it because they don't know what they're saying, but they're developing their own ear for it. And so... Absolutely, I believe it. If she can just tell that something doesn't sound right, even if she can't put her finger on exactly what's wrong, uh, she might have a better ear for it than I do at this point. Wow, interesting. Um, okay, so as I mentioned, uh, this this project is it's essentially about the importance of um, effective communication of technical or highly specified subjects, um, and that includes again both audiences in a general sense and within the field. So when, you are, when you're asked to create a language, do you ever go into the specifics of how you're creating that language um, in order to get feedback and ensure that you're getting them what they want, or can too much background sort of muddy that process? Uh, sometimes going into detail is warranted, uh, and, and, and sometimes, uh, most, of the time, most of the time it's not. Like... Uh, for example, when settling on the sound of a language, uh, and I, if I know I want to employ some sort of more uh, phonological process, whether it's you know, dissimilation of stops before other stops or word final devoicing, I, I don't need to tell them that so long as I can say, here's what, what I'm thinking sounds like. Does that sound good to you? And they can just say up or down, yes or no. And I always tell them to give whatever feedback they want, and I know how to interpret it. So if they say, oh, it needs to sound like softer or harsher, or there's too many stringent consonants, you know, they'll come up with any type of adjective that does, that's totally meaningless, but at this point in time, I kind of get what they're after, and I can look at what I'm doing and interpret what they're saying. Uh, so usually we're working at that level, um, when, especially when you talk with, about production. Um, but sometimes if I need to really make a point specific uh, 
then I'll have to get into details, in which case it's best to start off with what they know and then build from there. Uh, just essentially teach a mini lesson so you can get to the point where you say, here is the issue that I am having. I want to do this, but right now what's in the script calls for this, which is the exact opposite. Uh, could we perhaps alter this so that we can do what I want to do here? Um, Have you found them to be a little flexible in that? Yeah, actually. Uh, usually, uh, um, I mean, we're, and we both have to kind of be flexible there. But usually if I, if I ask for some sort of change and it's not important to anything else, important to the script, they'll just go ahead and do it uh, without even you know, asking why. Um, but also sometimes, like, you know, for example, this happened a couple seasons ago. Uh, they, we translated this line about, um, you sit, it was, it was originally you sit before Daenerys Stormborn, blah, 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 it was this and a whole bunch of titles. Uh, and since uh, Valyrian is a case language that inflects with suffixes, um, her name changed, as it would, because it was in a different case. Uh, and I wrote back and said, we really, we really wanted her name to be recognizable. Like, can it not change? And so then the response to that is not like, okay, let's rip out the case system. But um, I say, well, okay, can I recast the sentence then? Can I just, for example, make it a passive sentence? So elevate her to subject position so it sounds the way it should. And that's when they said, uh, you know, as, as I explained it, they said, yes, that's fine. Um, just so long as we still hear her name and it means approximately the same thing, then it's fine. So that's the type of discourse that usually happens uh, when it comes up. This, and this type of thing comes up maybe once or twice a season. Um, and I, I found usually they're pretty amenable to the changes that I want to make. Do you ever find yourself uh, under like a time restraint of uh, of how long something is being said? Because you know, in television, things are you have to kind of move it along, move the process along, and not be so um, ex extensive in what you're trying to say. So, is that ever a limitation when creating language? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you three different answers here. <clears throat> so, on something like Game of Thrones, uh, they've actually been very, very very, very tolerant of what I do. In other words, they'll just take whatever I translate and that's what it becomes. And uh, however long it takes, that's how long it takes. And that's great. But they, of course, also don't really need to be worried about how long the show is. Um, they can say to HBO, hey, we want another 10 minutes for this episode. And HBO says, fine. <laughs> you know, they don't have to worry about commercials or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I have discovered in other shows that there is a loose constraint, which is if the director on the day of the shoot is hearing something and decides it's too long, he may just decide to indiscriminately lop off a word. And it's just sometimes that absolutely destroys the grammar of the sentence. And so in that case, I kind of keep in mind if something is getting very long, I'll try to recast it on my own. So that it's close to the same length of, of what the English would be. Um, the nice thing is that acted English often takes up much more time than just casual conversation English. Mm. Like, um, I think it just goes back to theater. That, that theatrical strain is still in there a lot, where just when they're acting the English, it doesn't sound like two people speaking. It sounds a little bit more like they're performing. Um, the, the the third thing, though, the 
one of the things that I think I've done in my work that's the most interesting and that I also hate the absolute most is translating songs. And I've done it a lot. I, I counted up, I think I did more than 20 songs on Defiance. And some of those were original lyrics, but most of those was translating either popular songs that they got the rights to or original lyrics written by like the showrunner. Um, and that was just a nightmare, an absolute nightmare, because English is so compact, so amazingly compact. You can say so much with so few syllables, uh, and, and it's the syllables that are really important rather than the number of words. Um, and there's context, too. Yeah, yes. Uh, so, <laughs> like, like, for example, I had, to, I had to translate the song Doll Parts once, which is a song by Hole. And the lyrics of this song is like... I am doll legs, doll eyes, doll mouth. Four lines, uh, all each one two syllables. And I was translating in this this into a language where which is first of all S O V, so the verb comes at the end, so you couldn't start with something like I am. Uh, and second, like the shortest I could get, just the title doll parts was five syllables. Um, which language? This was Castathan for a show called Defiance. Okay. Um, and so there you have to be very, very clever. Like with that one, I ended up looking at just the entire first two stanzas as a whole and saying, how can I convey this content in roughly the same way? And I just broke it up differently so that like by the end of the first uh, stanza, I had, I had said basically, I... Uh, dolls, legs, eyes, and kept going. So the verb was at the end of the second stanza. Had to cut out a word. I think I ended up cutting out legs because there was no way to get it super short. And it's like, so after two, two stanzas, it fit the syllable count and mostly meant the same thing. Very, very difficult. <laughs> so when you explained that to them, you know, were they... Were they kind of adamant about just making sure that it worked, or were they... Yeah. I mean, there are two different levels there. So the, the one who was writing the lyrics was not the songwriter, mm. right? Or, or, or the one who requested, you know, obviously, the lyrics. Uh, it would be the showrunner. Um, so he just says, let's, let's do a version of this and translate it. Uh, so he just cares that the meaning is the same. Mm. Then I had a, a separate working relationship with, uh, with Brendan McCreary, who was the one who was at, actually ended up doing the songs. He was great because he could pronounce my languages very, very well. So that was nice. Uh, but also, he was good with working with what I gave him. So I would give him my translation, and then I would say, here it is. If you have to start cutting syllables, these are the ones to go first. If you have to do even more, these are the ones you can do if absolutely necessary, but it's going to sound a little funny. And he would be able to work with it and get something that was still recognizably the language. You know, he wasn't cutting too much, but also managed to fit and sound natural. Uh, it was, uh, he's kind of a genius, and I think I was very lucky to have him on the team. So it was very much a collaboration. Um, 
sometimes your audience uh, isn't necessarily part of the world you're in uh, when it comes to language creation or even linguistics as a whole. Mm. So what are some of the requirements of convincing that audience, whether they're clients or public or even students, um, that you really are someone of authority on the topic and not just some guy who's throwing sounds and things together? There's kind of two different ways to do this. I mean, first you have to you have to demonstrate mastery of the subject matter, which means that you know you know all the terminology and you can use it. But uh, for people that don't know the terminology, it's just going to sound like gobbledygook. And you know, to a certain extent, they'll hopefully trust that you know what you're talking about. But it helps to be able to demonstrate exactly what you're talking about in a way that somebody can understand. Uh, language, I think, is a very is a very easy field to do that in because uh, whatever you're saying about language data, there's always the data. You know, you can always just write down some words, pronounce them, and say this is what's happening. You know, this, this one's changing like this, using very, very simple terminology. And it's like, well, why is it changing? Well, it's changing to make, the, make it a little easier to pronounce. Just like we change our, our T's and D's in the middle of words to something that sounds like a D. So we don't say uh, something like, uh, gosh, I'm gonna, uh, I always have trouble coming up with an example off the top of my head. Matador is a bad example because that comes from Spanish. Um, uh, like little, for example. We don't go around saying little with a very clear and obvious T. It just gets uh, reduced a little bit to something that's D-like to make it easier to pronounce little. That's kind of what's happening with this example that I'm showing you. It's getting easier to pronounce, and sometimes sounds change like that. Uh, so y you can work with it at that level uh, to make sure that they just understand what's happening. They don't necessarily need to understand uh, in a very complicated way why it's happening or why, for example, one is easier than the other, or what other options there were, or why it doesn't happen, or when it doesn't happen. Like why the T changes in little, but it doesn't change in photography. They don't need to, to understand that. But they need to understand that there's something going on there. And I, I think especially with language, it's, it's easy to do, because the, the data is always going to be, here's a word, or here's a sentence, or here's a sound. And since we're both human beings, we can pronounce them. And figure out what's going on with it. And the understanding of what you're trying to say is still coming across. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, we interviewed um, a linguistics professor at MIT, and we talked a Who? little... Uh, what was his name? Um, Ted Gibson. Okay. Um, and we, we got into context. I'm, I was an English major, um, and there are certain things that like I guess a lot of people in society that, that, that bug me, like um, Oxford comma, you know, when that's not being used. Or, yeah. you know, and he, and he told me the story about, or he was telling us a story about a, a guy who was like, apostrophes aren't necessary because context is still there. People are going to understand it either way. Um, it might take them a little longer, but they're going to get it. Um, so when you were talking about that, that reminded me, you know, of, of that conversation that context is still going to be there. Um, but when it comes to this technical stuff, can, do you think that things can get lost in, in context or translation if you're not being specific about not only just your writing, but your speaking as well? 
Yes, I'm trying to think about how to respond to this. <laughs> um, you think you can re-ask this question? I'm, I'm trying to think. So give me, give me a scenario. Sure. Um, so if, if I'm contracting that is to that's. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know. I know that. Yeah, but if I don't use that apostrophe, people are still going to understand. Like in memes, you see things yeah. grammatically incorrect, but you still get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think the context can ever get lost um, if you're not speaking effective, if you're oh. not communicating? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons that we have these these uh, these things like apostrophes, uh, which you don't hear in speech, is we use them for disambiguation. So uh, there's always going to be things that are ambiguous. Uh, and so since writing is a static medium, and you have all the time in the world to do what you want there, uh, we employ these simply for the purpose of disambiguation, because things can be ambiguous when you speak. Uh, since it's not there. Uh, and so um, I think it, it, there is definitely that potential there. It's hard to, especially on the fly, construct the perfect example of ambiguity, but it absolutely can happen where you could have two people coming away with two totally opposite interpretations of, of what you're saying. Uh, I think it's helpful, especially to know where those problem situations can emerge so that you can be aware of them beforehand and make it absolutely clear what it is you're talking about. Uh, it is also, of course, always helpful when people listening ask questions because that's the best indicator that something you said wasn't clear. Um, but, but yeah, there are certain cases, especially it's like so, so responding to the thing that you earlier said where it's like if we got rid of possibilities, well, context will always help you to determine the difference. Uh, if you add an infinite amount of time in there, I will agree. However, if all you've got is an hour and you said something that has, that's slightly ambiguous or slightly or, or vague, uh, and then the hour ends and there's no possible way to disambiguate what was said, then it remains forever ambiguous until maybe, you know, another hour comes along later and you can clear it up. So uh, it's, it's something that I think that one should be mindful of, as mindful of as possible ahead of time so that it's maximally clear. Okay, because yeah, sometimes at the end of that hour they won't have, just as you said, an opportunity to, to clear that up. Right. So. Um, so when you create a language, how much of the utility or, I guess, usefulness of that language comes into play um, as you're parsing everything out. So when you, are there, are, is, uh, speaking of the ambiguity part, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, are you allowing for some of that when you create a language? Um, the, when I create a naturalistic language, it should be indistinguishable from a natural language that occurs on Earth. And that means that it will function fully, so it should be able, perfectly usable for, uh, for translation. Uh, but it also means that it has all of the irregularities, all of the vagueness, and all of the potential for ambiguity that exists in any natural language. Um, if, you, if you've done anything else, then you haven't created a naturalistic language. You've created something that's rather fake. Okay. Well, yeah. What about slang? Do you ever you know, throw that in? That's more of an issue for what we are able to represent on screen. 
So uh, if you have one person and this one person is speaking the language and they only speak it in you know, one type of context, then you're really only going to get one type of language. Uh, if you have a bunch of different types of speakers who come from different places or different backgrounds, then that's when you have the opportunity to do uh, different registers. So one of the things that I had a lot of fun with was um, in Defiance, we had, uh, we had um, an age group of people that had come from a different planet and, had, uh, and were born there and raised their whole lives there and came to Earth and learned English as a second language. Um, and then you had their offspring who were raised bilingually um, at best, sometimes maybe as heritage speakers with English as their dominant language. Um, and so they spoke their home languages differently from their parents. And in fact, with, uh, with traits that were definitely influenced by English, which of course never would have happened with those languages back on the home planet. And so when I was doing uh, speech for the younger generation, I could demonstrate that. And that was, that was really cool and it's a lot of fun. Um, and also on, a, on something like Game of Thrones, we've had some fun with people who are non-native speakers of a language who don't always get everything right. Um, and so that's another kind of little register you can do. So uh, when I'm working for television shows and movies, uh, I, I, of course I'm always thinking about it, but I'm able to do it to the extent that the script calls for it. Um, and then in that case, it's just uh, totally on me to represent it. Okay. So uh, to sort of flip the script some, um, when you're part of the audience, what are, what are some things that a speaker or writer can do when it comes to the language they're using um, that can distract you from the message or topic? The more, uh, the more tokens you have for a language, um, and I guess this is more for audio, uh, than visual, like looking at a book. Uh, the more tokens you have, a token being like just a sentence, the more likely it is that the casual viewer will pick up on inconsistencies. And not inconsistencies like, wait a minute, you're supposed to use the dative with that postposition, and then this one you use the olative. Like, no, nothing like that, nothing like that. But just the fact that, you know, if you hear, if you hear five sentences of Russian spoken throughout the course of a movie, you can tell that it's Russian, even if you've never studied the language. And it'd be really weird if, like, you know, the fifth sentence, some new actor comes out and is saying, and it's like, that's not Russian. I don't speak Russian. I don't know a word of Russian, but that's not Russian. So it's like you can tell. Uh, so the more sentences you have, the more opportunities to hear the language you have in a movie or in an episode of a show, the more likely it is going to be that you can pick up on the, the inconsistency of sound. Uh, and so that's what, uh, as, a, as a listener, I hear. The, the inconsistency from sentence to sentence and speaker to speaker. Um, and also just the fluidity. And that's something, that, uh, that's something that it's easier to be fluid with a language that works like a language than with just a bunch of random words. Uh, because languages will have repetitions of the same types of consonant clusters to begin a word and consonant clusters or consonants to end a word. Um, and even with something like English where you think about, well, English can have like anything to end a word. This is absolutely true. But in a random sentence, 
certain codas, that is certain consonants that end a syllable and end a word, are going to pop up more than others because they're more common. Uh, and so you kind of hear that and internalize it and it helps to build a rhythm for the language. Uh, and as well as, of course, the intonation for the language in general, which should be consistent from sentence after sentence after sentence. Um, and this is something that uh, typically uh, those who are constructing like gibberish and saying it's a language, they don't think about this. They're just like, eh, whatever, just put that in there. And then the actors treat it very inauthentically so that, you know, they're speaking their English lines, you know, with their acting English voice and doing very well. And then suddenly they come up to this created line and they're saying like, and it's like, oh, just, I don't even know what that was, but that sounded awful. It sounded fake. And that's what I think that I am looking for. Just even as a casual viewer, it just needs to sound right. It can't sound obviously fake. It has to sound authentic. Do you think things like, um, I, I, I heard you a couple of years back on the Nerdist episode and you were oh, talking yeah, yeah. with, um, with uh, Jonah, Jonah Ray about the pidgin um, English oh, yeah. that they speak there. Hawaiian Creole English. Yeah. yeah. Does, that, does, that, is, does that distract you knowing that it's, or, or do you consider it even, I don't want to say lazy because I think that's a bad word for it, but um, is that a distraction for you when you know that it's kind of a bastardized version of the native language, I guess. I'm going to try to answer this question in less than an hour. <laughs> I, I, did I open up a can of worms there? A little bit. Um, first of all, the state of Hawaiian Creole English at present it is basically just a dialect of English, which means that it has the exact same status of any dialect of English. It's not better than any others. It's not worse than any others. It's simply English. The earliest forms of Hawaiian Pidgin English were very much more uh, a Pidgin in that they did include a lot of Hawaiian words and there was some influence of Hawaiian uh, grammar. Uh, that influence has been watered down a lot over the centuries, a couple centuries, uh, to the point where I would say that, that HD is pretty much just a, a dialect of English at this point. Uh, but very much uh, a proper and appropriate dialect of English for those that speak it natively. Um, uh, so there's there's no connection, uh, or there's there's no real direct connection any longer between HCA and the Hawaiian language proper. Um, just a lot of vocabulary. Uh, pidgin languages themselves are are called pidgins because they lack the consistency of a language and also just the range of expressivity and the um and the and the uh, vocabulary uh so that means that you know if it's if it's at the stage of a pigeon one person may be speaking it one way another person may be speaking it another way and it hasn't really solidified yet uh, the stage of a pigeon happens at the very earliest stage when, uh, and it happened a lot historically, when people who spoke many different languages were brought to a location um, and they didn't share a language in common. And at the same time, there was often a power imbalance. So there were people that spoke one language who were in charge, and then people who weren't in charge who spoke many different languages. And the result of that was a pidgin, which was the only language they shared in common, was the overseer's language. 
And so they, uh, but they were never taught it. In fact, specifically were not taught it. And so they just picked up whatever they could as best they could and formed a makeshift uh, kind of language. Um, but that's a pigeon. A creole is something different. A creole is when a pigeon is uh, essentially solidifies, it solidifies and becomes a full language. Um, and that has a very consistent grammar. In other words, a, a creole, a, a pigeon, you can't really speak wrong as long as you're kind of using the same words. A creole, you absolutely can speak wrong so that somebody can tell you, no, that's not how you say that. Um, probably the most famous and most robust creole spoken in the world today is Tokpising, which is one of the official languages and probably the main language for most people in Papua New Guinea. And uh, Tokpisin is uh, something that evolved in precisely this way over on those islands. Uh, English is used as its lexifier language, but its grammar is entirely distinct from English. And so even though you can look at a sentence of Tokpisin and recognize, well, that word came from this English word, that word came from this English word, um, they don't mean the same thing. The grammar is entirely different. The grammar is consistent, and uh, it's... You know, basically, yeah, children learn it, children use it, and, it's, and it has the full range of expression. You know, there's an entire literature in, in Tokpisin, in addition to, you know, radio programs, news programs, uh, other TV programs, and, and all that. So, um, at this stage, Tokpisin is a language, and the fact that uh, its vocabulary was derived from English is basically a historical footnote. Um, it would be wrong to call it a bastardized form of English. Uh, it just wouldn't make any sense. Um, like, like I said at this stage, it's just historically related to English. Um, in, a, in a similar but less significant way than something like Spanish is related to Latin. Uh, Spanish clearly evolved from vulgar Latin, but there were a lot of influences from other places. And if you look at the Spanish future tense, for example, the composite future tense, and look at how it's formed uh, and see what its history was, a, a Latin speaker, a pure Latin speaker from the days of the Roman Empire will look at that and say, well, that's just, that's just bad Latin. I mean, we have a future tense. Why aren't you using that future tense instead of this made-up gobbledygook you just did? But that doesn't mean anything. It certainly doesn't mean anything to modern Spanish. Um, there are just two different languages at this point that have a historical connection. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> does it bother me? Far from it. <laughs> I mean, that's... I mean, uh, Pidgin and Creole languages are one of my favorite areas of linguistics. Uh, I was able to... I was very fortunate. I was able to take a course taught by John McWhorter at, at UC Berkeley while I was there. It was amazing. Um, and it's also, uh, not only that, Creole languages have been very informative when it comes to demonstrating how languages evolve because their time depth, time depth is such that uh, we can actually go back and study them at the very beginning. Um, and not only that, we know the sources that they were drawn from as opposed to, like, if you start going back with Latin, you get to Proto-Indo-European, which we can just guess at and there are absolutely no written records of. And, you, and going further back than that, it's even greater guesswork. So, um, anyway, uh, that's about my response to that. Okay. That was good for night. I'm sure you could have talked for another hour on yeah. that. So, um, Just a, a side comment. You brought up 
Spanish. I was I just finally caught up to, with uh, Orange is the New Black. And mm, I'm not fully caught up. Oh, okay. So. Well, it, it, I won't give anything away, but cool. so, sometimes when they speak, um, there's a mix in, in, within a sentence. They'll go from English to Spanish. Yep. Um, and I just I really enjoyed that. I had never heard really many people doing that. Yeah. Um, there's a, there are a couple of cool examples of, of code switching that happen in Game of Thrones, but it's fun. Yeah. It's fun when you can do it, and I did all kinds of stuff like that in Defiance. That was great. Loved it. So when you do that, then you know, do you ever end up repeat? Because you said that you know, there's a uh, for doll parts. There's it's a five syllable, you know, or legs. It was five syllable uh, right. word. So I mean, do you ever end up when you're when you're code switching like that? Do you ever end up repeating a word, um, or is are you able to get through? one half of one language and the other half of the other language without oh, mixing. Yeah, now code switching only really works if um, if you've said what you've said. So it's like if, <laughs> so uh, I know exactly what you're thinking of, but like for example, let's say that you started out in English, right? And then you say the verb and then you switch to castathan, it's not going to make sense to repeat the verb again. Uh, that wouldn't work. So usually what happens is you can switch and you just entirely switch to the new uh, grammatical form of the language that you're switching to um, without repeating any of the old elements. And so usually it happens when it's more convenient um, so that you don't have a bizarre thing where it's like you've said the verb in one language and say it again in a different language. Um, uh, there have actually been a lot of studies on uh, on code switching you know, with natural languages that kind of demonstrate that there's, uh, there's a lot of internal consistency to it across languages. Um, and so it's a very interesting literature if you, if you have time for it, you know. All right. Um, finally, do you have anything that, that I guess, advice for, for grad students when they're trying to communicate something to an audience? Is there, are there effective rules um, or rules that are very more effective than others? Audiences, and I, I should say, I, I give talks on language creation all the time, all the time. And um, most of the time, the audience has absolutely no background in linguistics. I found that, um, and actually, I just knew this from being you know, an audience member. Uh, audiences know when you're dumbing things down, and they don't appreciate it. Uh, so the goal is to not dumb things down, but to recognize the areas where things are going to be complex. Uh, so and that means both when new terminology has come up and when the concept itself is complicated. And in those circumstances, with uh, terminology, of course, repetition helps, but also uh, the will and testament method. So in other words, uh, like with the reason we say will and testament is one has a background in English, one has a background in French. And back in, during the days of Norman French, you needed to use both so that everybody would understand what you were talking about, even though they meant the same thing. So that's why we say will and testament. Uh, so I do that too. I, I start with the, with, the, with the formal term, so that, and you know, I, I usually have it up so people can see it, so they know how it's spelled but then immediately say what it is in a simpler way and keep referring to it until I can, you know, you can gauge that everybody knows what you're talking about. But then the best thing is to follow up immediately with a concrete example. 
Um, and again, this is going to differ depending on your field and language. It is so wonderful to be able to just have language data that people can work with and look at. And it also helps to start with the language that everybody speaks. So uh, when I'm around America, I do English. But like when I went to um, Spain and Mexico, I used Spanish examples. Um, and then when I was in India, I used Hindi examples. Um, just something that, or northern India, I guess I'll have to switch to Tamil when I go to southern India. But it, it helps so that people say, all right, I know this. And then you say, all right, you know this. Now let me demonstrate something that you don't know about this. And that's going to illustrate my point. Um, so, like, you know, with, uh, with sound change, this is something that I think a lot of people have no idea about. Uh, that, you know, sounds change over time. One thing they do know is that English has funky spelling. So it's wonderful to take an example like night and night, you know, uh, night spelled with a K, night spelled without a K, both of them spelled with a funny GH, which who knows why, and demonstrate that these words were actually spelled this way because they were pronounced differently at some point in time in the past, and show them how gradually the sounds changed so that we got from knicht to night, but the spelling didn't. And that is a really easy way to demonstrate how both why we have irregular spellings and how sounds change over time. Same thing with like uh, grammatical evolution. That is a, a crazy complex uh, idea. The idea that, that grammar uh, subtly and slowly evolves over time. But we have a wonderful example in English with you know, the, our go future where we, everybody knows that to the future tense is something like I, I will eat or I shall eat. But we also have a different one with go. And you can show how we would have started off with some sort of prolix expression like I go to London to eat, where you're saying an actual definition using the verb on its own the way that it should be used, and then expressing what you're going to do when you get there. And then you show how you can just, well, take away the destination. Now you're saying you're going for some intention. And then things slowly change. So you say, instead of I go to eat, you say, I am going to eat. And then I am going to eat. Then I am going to eat. And then I am going to eat. I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat. And you get all the way to the present. You know? And so it's like you can demonstrate that. And people get that because they know it uh, without having to go straight into the technical terminology and without showing them an example that, that might potentially be more interesting. Like, I, I think it's tremendously uh, interesting um, to demonstrate how, um, how like, uh, the, uh, the, the cases evolved and merged in uh, the, the accusative and genitive cases evolved and merged in Finnish. But I think it's a little opaque for English-speaking audiences. So you start with the easy example, then you can move on to graded examples and just basically bring them along with you, you know? Uh, and uh, and I, I've had a lot of success doing it in precisely that way. So that uh, most of the time, especially what people say at the end, wow, there was a, there was a lot of you know, terminology that I didn't understand, but it's like I was able to follow what you're saying, and that's really cool, and now I get what you're doing. And I think that's, that's the best part. Because then if they want to know about the details, they can go investigate themselves. Do you think language is ever going to get to a point where it's, there's so so little words, but people will still be under, be able to understand, like the I am going to eat part. Mm. You know, it's all of a sudden down to two, three syllables. You know, like where do you see this, where's this end point going to be? A lot of people have 
noticed that. Like, this was George Orwell's whole thing with his full novel, 1984. Anyway. <laughs> Not a fan, huh? Nah. But uh, they often don't recognize the other, ass, the other end of it, which is this. Um, when things start to get too small, that's when we add more words. So you, you notice, like, especially with you, you talk about this, this future tense, the most natural thing to do at this point is not to say, I'm going to eat, but I'm going to go eat. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it got too short. We just threw in another go. Why not? <laughs> but it's like, yeah, at a certain point, uh, things get too short. And so people feel that they're not being uh, explicit enough. And so they just add more verbiage. And so uh, and this is something that actually writers complain about every single century where it's like, you know, why say this? It's too prolix. Instead, you could just say this simply. It's like, well, you've spotted something. Um, and so uh, there, there, there was something else I, I want to say. About, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the most productive, usually the most productive um, language creators, shall we say, in this, in this macro sense, uh, are teenagers, actually. And I don't think that teenagers are ever going to stop being that way. You know, they want to distinguish themselves as the new generation. So they say things a little differently. That means shortening certain things and expanding other things mm-hmm. and changing the meaning of things. Some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. But uh, that is absolutely never going to change. Yeah, there was, I listened to a podcast called Away With Words. Um, are you familiar with that one? I'm not, actually. It's, it's basically um, these two highly intelligent uh, Wordsmiths, I guess. I, I can't think of a better way to explain them. Uh, one of them is his name is Grant Barrett, and he's written, you know, dictionaries and and or works on dictionaries and things like that. And they talk about the etymology of words and um, sayings and and things like that. And recently, there was one episode where they were they were reciting graffiti from back in you know medieval times and even further back than that. You know, mm. and it's that kind of stuff. That doesn't change, you know. It's just how how it's said changes, but it, it's it's always going to be there, you know. Yeah. So I, I thought that was that was interesting. That's really but, cool. Yeah, that's that's all I have. Right I, on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurick. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is, GradX made, is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of The Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.